Chapter Ten, Part Two, of the Worst Journey in the World, Volume Two by Apsley Cherry Garrard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Ten, The Polar Journey, The Beardmore Glacier, Part Two. The next day, December sixteenth, Bowers wrote. We have had a really enjoyable day's march, except for the latter end of the afternoon. At the outset in the forenoon my sledge was a bit in the lurch, and Scott drew steadily away from us. I knew I could ordinarily hold my own with him, but for the first two hours we dropped till we were several hundred yards astern. Try as I would to rally up my team, we could gain nothing. On examining the runners, however, we soon discovered the cause by the presence of a thin film of ice. After that we ran easily. The thing one must avoid doing is to touch them with a hand or mitt, as anything damp will make ice on them. We usually turn the sledge on its side, and scrape one runner at a time with the back of our knives, so as to avoid any chance of cutting or chipping them. In the afternoon either the tea or the butter we had at lunch made us so strong we fairly overran the other team. We must push on all we can, for we are now six days behind Shackleton, all due to that wretched storm. So far, since we got among the disturbances, we have not seen such alarming crevasses as I had expected. Certainly dogs could have come up as far as this. At lunch we could see big pressure ahead, having done first over five miles. Soon after lunch, having gone down a bit, we rose among very rough stuff. We plugged on until 4.30, when ski became quite impossible, and we put them on the sledges and started on foot. We immediately began putting legs down. One step would be on blue ice, and the next two feet down into snow. Very hard going. The pressure ahead seemed to stretch right into a big glacier next to the Celtic Glacier to the east, and so we altered course for a small bluff point about two-thirds of the way along the base of the cloudmaker. We were to camp at six, but did not do so until about six-thirty, the last one and a half hours in big pressure, crossing big and smaller waves and hundreds of crevasses, which one of us generally found. We are now camped in very big pressure, and with difficulty we found a patch big enough to pitch the tent free from crevasses. We are pretty well past the Celtic glacier, which is a vast tumbled mass. There is a long line of ice-falls ahead, and I think there is a hard day ahead of us tomorrow among that pressure which must be enormous. We can't go further inshore here, being under the north end of the cloud-maker, and a fine mountain it is, rising precipitously above us. Sunday, December 17th, nearly 11 miles. Temperature, 12.5 degrees, 3,500 feet. We have had an exciting day. This morning was just like the scenic railway at Earl's Court. We got straight on to the big pressure waves and headed for the humpy rock at the base of the cloudmaker. It was a hard plug up the waves, very often standing pulls, and all that we could do for a course was a very varied direction. Going down the other side was the exciting part. All we could do was to set the sledge straight, hang on to the straps, give her a little push, and rush down the slope, which was sometimes so sheer that the sledge was in the air. Sometimes there was no chance to break the sledge, and we all had to get on the, to the top, and we rushed down with the wind whistling in our ears. After three hours of this it levelled out again a bit, but we took the top of a wave and ran south along it on blue ice. Enormous pressure to our right largely, I think, caused by the Celtic Glacier. Then we ascended a rise, snowy and crevassed, and camped after doing just under five miles, with big pressure ahead. In the afternoon we had a hard surface. Scott started off at a great speed. 
Teddy, Evans, and I following. There was something wrong with my team or my sledge, as we had a desperate job to keep up at first. We did keep up all right, but were heartily glad when, after about two and a half hours, Scott stopped for a spell. I rearranged our harness, putting Cherry myself on the long span again, which we had temporarily discarded in the morning. We were both winded and felt wronged. The rearrangement was a success, however, and the remainder of the march was a pleasure instead of a desperate struggle. It finished up on fields of blue, rippled ice with sharp knife edges, and snow patches few and far between. We are all camped on a small snow patch in the middle of a pale blue, rippled sea about 3,600 feet above sea level, and past the cloud maker, which means that we are half way up the glacier. We had done twelve and a half miles, statute. The Beardmore Glacier is twice as large as the Malaspina in Alaska, which was the largest known glacier until Shackleton discovered the Beardmore. Those who knew the Ferrar Glacier professed to find the Beardmore unattractive, but to me at any rate it was grand. Its very vastness, however, tends to dwarf its surroundings, and great tributary glaciers and tumbled icefalls, which anywhere else would have aroused admiration, were almost unnoticed in a stream which stretched in places forty miles from bank to bank. It was only when the theodolite was levelled that we realised how vast were the mountains which surrounded us, one of which we reckoned to be well over twenty thousand feet in height, and many of the others must have approached that measurement. Lieutenant Evans and Bowers were surveying whenever the opportunity offered, whilst Wilson sat on the sledge, or on his sleeping-bag, and sketched. Before leaving on the morning of December 18th, we bagged off three half-weekly units and made a depot marked by a red flag on a bamboo, which was stuck into a small mound. Unfortunately, it began to snow in the night, and no bearings were taken until the following morning, when only the base of the mountains on the west side was visible. We knew we might have difficulty in picking up this depot again, and certainly we all did. It was thick, with low stratus clouds in the morning, and snow was falling in large crystals. Our socks and finesco, hung out to dry, were covered with most beautiful feathery crystals. In the warm weather one gets fairly saturated with perspiration on the march, and footgear is always wet except the outside covering, which is, as a rule, more or less frozen, according to existing temperature. On camping at night I shift night footgear as soon as ever the tent is pitched, and generally slip on my windproof blouse, as one cools down like smoke after the exertion of man-hauling a heavy sledge for hours. At lunch camp one's feet often get pretty cold, but this goes off as soon as some hot tea has got into the system. As a rule, even when snowing, one's socks, etc., will dry if there is a bit of a breeze. They are always frozen stiff in the morning, and can be best thawed out by bundling the lot under one's jersey during breakfast. They can then be put on tolerably warm, even if wet. We started off on a hard, rippled blue surface like a sea frozen intact, while the wind was playing on it. It soon got worse, and we had to have one and sometimes two hands back to keep the sledge from skidding. Of course it was easy enough stuff to pull on, but the ground was very uneven, and the sledges constantly capsized. It did not improve the runners either. There were few crevasses. All day we went on in dull cloudy weather with hardly any land visible, and the glacier to be seen only for a short distance. In the afternoon the clouds lifted somewhat and showed us the Adam Mountains. The surface was better for the sledges, but worse for us, as there were countless cracks and small crevasses into which we constantly trod, barking our shins. As the afternoon sun came round, the perspiration fairly streamed down, and it was impossible to keep goggles clear. The surface was so slippery and uneven that it was difficult to keep one's foothold. However, we did twelve and a half miles, 
and felt that we had really done a good day's work when we camped. It was not clear enough to survey in the evening, so I took the sledge meter in hand and worked at it half the night to repair Christopher's damage. I ended up by making a fixing of which I was very proud, but did not dare to look at the time, so I don't know how much sleep I missed. There is no doubt that Scott knows where to aim for in a glacier, as it was just here that Shackleton had two or three of his worst day's work, in such a maze of crevasses, that he said that often a slip meant death for the whole party. He avoids the sides of the glacier and goes nowhere near the snow. He often heads straight for apparent chaos, and somehow, when we appear to have reached a cul-de-sac, we find it an open road. However, we all found the trouble on our way back. On our right we have now a pretty good view of the Adam, Marshall and Wild mountains, and their very curious horizontal stratification. Wright has found amongst bits of wind-blown debris an undoubted bit of sandstone and a bit of black basalt. We must get to know more of the geology before leaving the glacier finally. December 19th, plus 7 degrees. Total height 5,800 feet. Things are certainly looking up, seeing that we have risen 1,100 feet and marched 17 to 18 statute miles during the day, whereas Shackleton's last march was 13 statute. It was still thick when we turned out at 5.45, but it soon cleared, with a fresh southerly wind, and we could see Buckley Island and the land at the head of the glacier just rising. We started late, for Birdie wanted to get our sledge-meter dished up. It has been quite a job today, getting it on, but it rode well this afternoon. We started over the same crevasse stuff, but soon got on to blue ice, and for two hours had a most pleasant pull, and then up a steepish rise, sometimes on blue ice and sometimes on snow. After the pleasantest morning we have had, we completed eight and a half miles. Angles and observations were taken at lunch, and quite a lot of work was done. There is a general getting squared up with gear, for we know that those going on will not have many more days of warm temperatures. At one time today I think Scott meant trying the right hand of the island or none attack. But as we rose this was obviously impossible, for there is a huge mass of pressure coming down there, from here the Dominion Range also looks as if it were a non-attack. Some of these mountains, which don't look very big, are huge, since the 6,000 feet which we have risen have to be added on to them, and many of them are very grand indeed. The Mill Glacier is a vast thing, with big pressure across it. There also seems to be a big series of icefalls between Buckley Island and the Dominion Range, for the centre of which Scott is going tomorrow. A pretty hard plug this afternoon, but no disturbance, and gradually we have left the bare ice, and are mostly travelling on neve. Much of the ice is white. I have been writing down angles and times for Birdie, and writing this in the intervals. Scott's heel is troubling him again. I have bad bruises on knee and thigh. And generally there has been a run on the medical cases for chafes and minor ailments. There is now a keen southerly wind blowing. It gets a little colder each day, and we are already beginning to feel it on our sunburnt faces and hands. Of the crevasses met in the morning, Bowers wrote, So far nobody has dropped down the length of his harness, as I did on the Cape Crozier journey. On this blue ice they are pretty conspicuous, and as they are mostly snow-bridged, one is well advised to step over any line of snow. With my short legs this was strenuous work, especially as the weight of the sledge would often stop me with a jerk, just before my leading foot quite cleared a crevasse, and the next minute one will be struggling out so as to keep the sledge on the move. It is fatal to stop the sledge, as nobody waits for stragglers, and you have to pick up your lost ground by strenuous hurry. Of course some one often gets so far down a hole that it is necessary to stop and help him out. 
December 20th. Today has been a great march, over two miles an hour, and on the whole rising a lot. Soon after starting, we got on to the most beautifully icy surface, smooth except for cracks, and only patches of snow, most of which we could avoid. We came along at a great rate. The most interesting thing to see was that the Mill Glacier is not, as was supposed, a tributary, but probably is an outlet falling from this glacier, and a great size. However, it was soon covered up with dense black cloud, and there were billows of cloud behind us and below. At lunch Birdie made the disastrous discovery that the registering dial of his sledge-meter was off. A screw had shaken out on the bumpy ice, and the clockwork had fallen off. This is serious, for it means that one of the three returning parties will have to go without, and their navigation will be much more difficult. Birdie is very upset, especially after all the trouble he had taken with it, and the hours which he has sat up. After lunch he and Bill walked back near two miles in the tracks, but could not see it. It was then getting very thick, coming over from the north. It appeared to be blizzing down the glacier, though clear to the south. The northerly wind drove up a backdraft of snow, and very soon fogged us completely. However, we found our way back to camp by the crampon tracks on the blue ice, and then packed up to leave. We started making a course to hit the east side of the island where there seems to be the only break in the ice falls, which stretch right across. The weather lifted, and we are now camped with the island just to our right, the long strata of coal showing plainly in it, and just in front of us is this steep bit up through the falls. We have done nearly twenty-three statute miles today, pulling one hundred and sixty pounds a man. This evening has been rather a shock. As I was getting my finesco on to the top of my ski beyond the tent, Scott came up to me, and said that he was afraid he had rather a blow for me. Of course I knew what he was going to say, but I could hardly grasp that I was going back tomorrow night. The returning party is to be Atch, Silas, Kayon, and Self. Scott was very put about, said he had been thinking a lot about it, but had come to the conclusion that the seamen, with their special knowledge, would be needed to rebuild the sledge, I suppose. Wilson told me it was a toss-up whether Titus or I should go on. That being so, I think Titus will help him more than I can. I said all I could think of. He seemed so cut up about it, saying, I think somehow it is specially hard on you. I said I hoped I had not disappointed him, and he caught hold of me and said, No, no, no. So, if that is the case, all is well. He told me that at the bottom of the glacier he was hardly expecting to go on himself. I don't know what the trouble is, but his foot is troubling him, and also, I think, indigestion. Scott just says in his diary, I dreaded this necessity of choosing. Nothing could be more heart-rending. And then he goes on to sum up the situation. I calculated our programme to start from 85 degrees 10 minutes with 12 units of food and 8 men, we ought to be in this position to-morrow night, less one day's food. After all our harassing trouble, one cannot but be satisfied with such a prospect. December 21st, Upper Glacier Depot Started off with a nippy southwesterly wind in our faces, but bright sunshine, one's nose and lips being chapped and much skinned with alternate heat and cold, a breeze in the face is absolute agony until you warm up. This does not take long, however, when pulling a sledge, so after the first quarter of an hour, more or less one is comfortable, unless the wind is very strong. We made towards the only place where it seemed possible to cross the mass of pressure ice caused by the junction of the plateau with the glacier, and congested between the Nunatak, Buckley Island, and the Dominion Range. Scott had considered at one time going up to westward of the Nunatak, but this appeared more chaotic than the other side. We made for a slope close to the end of the island, or Nunatak, where Shackleton must have got up 
also. It is obviously the only place when you look at it from a commanding rise. We did not go quite so close to the land as Shackleton did, and therefore, as had been the case with us all the way up the glacier, found less difficulties than he met with. Scott is quite wonderful in his selections of route, as we have escaped excessive dangers and difficulties all along. In this case we had fairly good going, but got into a perfect mass of crevasses, into which we all continually fell, mostly one foot, but often two, and occasionally went down altogether, some to the length of their harness, to be hauled out with the alpine rope. Most of them could be seen by the strip of snow on the blue ice. They were often too wide to jump through, and the only thing was to plant your feet on the bridge and try not to tread heavily. As a rule, the centre of a bridged crevasse is the safest place. The rotten places are at the edges. We had to go over dozens by hopping right onto the bridge and then over onto the ice. It is a bit of a jar when it gives way under you, but the friendly harness is made to trust one's life to. The Lord only knows how deep these vast chasms go down. They seem to extend into the blue-black nothingness, thousands of feet below. Before reaching the rise, we had to go up and down many steep slopes, and on the one side the sledges were overrunning us, and on the other it fairly took the juice out of you to reach the top. We saw the stratification on the non-attack which Shackleton supposed to be coal. There was also much sandstone and red granite. I should like to have scratched round these rocks. We may get a chance on our return journey. As we topped each rise we found another one beyond it, and so on. About noon some clouds settled in a fog around us, and being fairly in a trough of crevasses we could not get on. Fortunately we found a snow-patch to pitch the tents on, but even there were crevasses under us. However, we enjoyed a hearty lunch, and I improved the shining hour by preparing my rations for the upper glacier depot. At 3pm it cleared, and Mount Darwin, an unattack to the south-west of the others, could be seen. This we made for, and some two miles on exchange blue ice for the new snow, which was much harder pulling. Scott was fairly wound up, and he went on and on. Every rise topped seemed to fire him with a desire to top the next, and every rise had another beyond and above it. We camped at 8pm, all pretty weary, having come up nearly 1,500 feet, and done over 11 miles in a south-westerly direction. We were south of Mount Darwin, in 85 degrees 7 minutes south, and our corrected altitude proved to be 7,000 feet above the barrier. I worked up till a very late hour getting the depot stores ready, and also weighing out and arranging allowances for the returning party, and arranging the stores and distribution of weights of the two parties going on. The temperature was down to zero today, the lowest it has been for some time this summer weather. There is a very mournful air tonight, those going on and those turning back. Bill came in while I was cooking to say good-bye. He told me he fully expected to come back with the next party, that he could see Scott was going to take on the strongest fellows, perhaps three seamen. It would be a great disappointment if Bill did not go on. We gave away any gear which we could spare to those going on, and I find the following in my diary. I have been trying to give away my spare gear where it may be most acceptable. Finesco to Birdie, pyjama trousers to Bill, and a bag of baccy for Bill to give Scott on Christmas Day. Some baccy to Titus, Jager socks and half my scarf to Crean, and a bit of a handkerchief to Birdie. Very tired tonight. Scott wrote, We are struggling on, considering all things against odds. The weather is a constant anxiety, otherwise arrangements are working exactly as planned. Here we are practically on the summit, and up to date in the provision line. We ought to get through. End of chapter 10, part 2